Great to see you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. It's great to have you with us this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 2. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can find a Bible. Uh, There's a blue church Bible kind of at the ends of the uh, rows of chairs. And if you're following along in one of those Bibles, John chapter 2 is on page 887. John chapter 2, let me invite you to stand with me as we give our uh, attention to God's word. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? God, would you be with us now as uh, we give our attention to your word? Would you help us by the power of your spirit to see more clearly who Jesus is and all that he has done for us? We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, a couple of years ago, I was uh, listening to the radio and I was listening to an interview with the guy who started kind of the food truck uh, craze. You remember food trucks used to just be for like, uh, you know, it wasn't like high cuisine, right? It was just like to serve construction workers or whatever. And sometimes, I don't know when it was, 10 years ago or so. (laughs) We're going to make it, don't worry. Uh, Somebody thought, um, you know, a food truck, you you could actually serve really good food out of a food truck. And so I was listening to an interview with this guy up in L.A. who was the first one to open a kind of a a foodie food truck. And he was talking about um, what he served out of his truck and he was saying that he made uh, Korean short rib street tacos. And he went on to kind of discuss in this interview why he, you know, just kind of hit upon the food truck model and and the business model and all that went into the logistics of that. And um, the interviewers asking him all these questions. But the whole time I'm listening, the only thing I can think is, Korean short rib street tacos. I mean, that just, the moment I heard those words, 
I knew that that sounded amazing, right? And he's talking about you get the Korean sh barbecue short ribs and you grill it up and you cut it really thin and then he makes this Asian coleslaw and he serves it on a warm tortilla with a, a little dash of sriracha on it and oh man, like I knew instantly that was going to be amazing. But it didn't compare to actually tasting it. At the moment I heard it, as you're all doing right now, going, yes, that sounds really good. But then I looked up the recipe and I cooked it for dinner and it took it to a whole new place. There's a difference, isn't there, between hearing that something is amazing and actually experiencing it, actually tasting it, actually eating it. We're in the middle of this series called Let's Eat, and it's basically a series looking at what the Bible says about food. And that might seem like a strange um, kind of way to organize a sermon series, but I believe that um, our hunger is a God-given thing. And we saw last week in the, in the first chapter of Genesis that God gave us food in order to show us that he is the one that satisfies, that he is the one that provides, and that he is good. And today what I want you to do is not just um, hear about the goodness of God, but my hope is that as we look at this story of Jesus' first miracle, at this feast, this party where he turns water into wine, my hope is that you would actually experience his goodness. The premise of this series, Let's Eat, is this, that all of human history is moving towards a feast. The Bible starts off on the first page talking about food. The Bible ends on almost the last page of the Bible talking about food. Food was central throughout the Old Testament. God gave his people wandering in the wilderness food. He gave them manna every morning to show that he is the one who provides for them. Uh, every, you know, several times a year, the, the, uh, God's people in the Old Testament would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate um, these feasts, which were parties about meeting with God. The sacrificial system was elaborate rituals all built around, around food and eating and meeting with God. In the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, food is central to his, his ministry. As, as Robert talked about, you know, he, he fed 5,000 people. He fed 3,000 people. He was always going to parties. Um, and then he leaves us a meal to remember him by. And we see here this morning that even his first miracle is about feasting. It's about wine, not food, but it's about, it's about a party. It's about feasting. And what I want you to see this morning as we look at this passage is, is this. What kind of Savior do we have? What kind of a Savior do we have? Um, this is, I, I don't know, I think this is a familiar passage to, to probably most of us. Um, even if you haven't been in the church for a long time, you're kind of, we've kind of just culturally hear about this idea that Jesus turned water into wine. And I think because it's an idea that we've heard about, we can miss just what a, what a wonderful and weird passage this is. I mean, think about what happens in this passage. Mary and Jesus are at this wedding, and they run out of wine. And Jesus is just sitting there, and Mary turns to him and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Do something. Well, it's Jesus, it says in this passage, he's never performed a miracle before. How does Mary know that Jesus can do anything about the wine problem? 
Okay, so that's kind of weird. But then Jesus responds. He turns around and he says, woman? Like, it's really... I mean, can we agree that at least he's pretty grumpy in the way that he talks to his mom? And literally, he says in the Greek, what is this between you and me? It's really like, it's a pretty abrupt statement. So clearly, he's not excited about being told to do something about the wine. He doesn't want to do it. But then Mary turns to the servants and says, just do whatever he tells you to do. And then he does it. Like, how weird is that? He doesn't want to do it, but he does it. Um, What is going on in this funny, weird story? Why is this the event that it says at the end of the chapter, at the end of the passage, that um, his disciples, this is the thing that causes his disciples to believe in him? What does this tell us about the kind of Savior that Jesus is? What I want you to see in this passage is the character of the God who is with us, the character of the God who invites us to come and feast with him. So three things I think that this passage shows us about the kind of Savior that we have. And the first is this, that he is a humble Savior. Jesus is at this wedding, and his mother is there. Um, We don't know whose wedding this is. Maybe it's a family friend, and Jesus there performs his first miracle. And it's such a humble miracle. Um, I mean, think about this. He's not raising the dead. He's not walking on water. He's not... um, you know, raining down fire from heaven. Uh, Nobody even notices that he does it. The servants are the only one. I think Mary and the servants are the only ones that know what he's even done. Why does Jesus even bother? We have to understand that in this culture, a wedding is a big deal. Now, like everybody, every wedding is a big deal to somebody, right? Hopefully, at least. But... (laughs) In the, in the Jewish culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, a wedding was a huge deal. I mean, it was a week-long feast. And, um, you know, it would have involved all kinds of elaborate preparation. And it's really like a, it's, you know, it's a statement of this family's care for this, this new couple. But it's also in some ways, a, um, you know, isn't it a, isn't it a showing of, of what our family is all about? And imagine in the middle of that to get, you know, through the middle to the middle of the week and you still got a half a week of the wedding feast to go and you run out of wine. I mean, think of how humiliating. Like, have you ever been at a party where they've, you've run out of food in the middle of the party? Or you run out of, you know, drinks in the middle of the party and it's just gone? It's like, well, the party's done now. Um, imagine the way people are going to talk about, you know, this family. They, oh man, did you hear? They ran out of wine in the middle of the, in the middle of a wedding. They couldn't even afford wine for the whole week. And this is the occasion of Jesus' first miracle. And I think what we see is this: that Jesus cares about the embarrassment. I got this groom. It's probably like 19-year-old man. He's going to be embarrassed, and Jesus cares about him. What this shows us is that the God of the universe is kind. I heard this story uh, a couple years ago when um, President Obama was leaving the White House, and the um, I guess there's an official White House photographer. And um, he was kind of reviewing some of his favorite images that he had taken of, of um, President Obama when he was in the White House. 
And there was this image, um, there was a picture where a, a five-year-old little African-American boy whose dad worked at the White House, and it was his dad's last day, and um, they invited the, this man to bring his son and get his picture taken with the president. And in the kind of the description, they, they say that this boy, this African-American boy, was so amazed to go in and see that the president was like him. And this five-year-old boy looks at President Obama and says, are you like me? And the president says, yes, I am like you. And he says, is your hair like me or like my hair? And instead of saying yes, the president dips his head down and says, feel it. And the kid kind of, you know, is timid. And he says, dude, touch it. <laughs> now, I know that half of you are going, oh, President Obama. But isn't that a beautiful picture? And doesn't it reveal something about the character of that man? Just a beautiful picture of this little boy discovering that the president of the United States is like him. Is like him. And that's a picture of what we see in this passage. This passage reveals something to us about who Jesus is. It shows us that the God of the universe is kind. He cares about this young man's embarrassment. And he cares about you. Second thing that this passage shows us is that we have a Savior who throws great parties. Um, I mean, think about some of the numbers on this. John tells us um, exactly how much wine Jesus made. He says there were six stone jars, each holding about 20 or 30 gallons of water. So at a minimum, we're talking 120 gallons, potentially as much as 180 gallons of wine here. Okay, I did a little math on this. Even if we use the smaller number of 120 gallons, that's about 605 bottles of wine. Okay, now when the master, you know, master ceremonies tastes the wine, he says, this is really great wine. So let's call that like 25 bucks a bottle, right? Again, this is probably on the low end. Uh, 605 bottles of wine at $25 a bottle is $15,125. Okay, that's a quite a wedding gift, isn't it? Um, Jesus doesn't make just enough wine. He makes really good wine and so much that you could never drink all of this by the end of by the end of the feast, by the end of the wedding banquet. Jesus doesn't, you know, when Mary says, hey, Jesus, we're out of wine, he doesn't pull it, you know, put his hand into his toga and pull out a 20 and say, well, I'm in for 20 bucks. You know, what else do the rest of you guys have? Let's all chip in. Let's send somebody down. No, he makes more than anybody could ever finish. His provision is full and abundant, and it's really good. I have a friend, a, a pastor friend of mine, uh, who said this. So imagine it's Friday night and you're headed home from work and you stop off at BevMo on the way home to pick up a bottle of wine for dinner. And the guy in line in front of you has got a six-pack. You know, if he's got a six-pack, you think, oh, you know, he's going to have a good night. You know, if he's got a couple six-packs, you think, well, this guy's probably going to a party. Now, if he backs up his truck 
and loads up 605 bottles of wine, you don't think this guy's going to the party. You think, this guy is the party. I'm going wherever he's going, right? And that's the way that our Savior throws parties. And the question that we have to think about is this. Do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that he loves you? Do you really believe that what he says is good for you is not him keeping something away from you, but that he is lavish in his love for you and he wants to show you how good he is and how much he loves you? I, um, you know, a while back, got uh, my kids together and I said, you know, well, let's make cookies together. And so we're, we're baking cookies and we're doing, I'll put all the ingredients in. We turn on the oven and we, uh, we cook, you know, as we cook the cookies, just the aroma of the cookies smells the kitchen. And, and uh, we pull them out and we let them cool. And there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of cookies. And my kids are like, Dad, can we have one? I said, no, they're not for you. <laughs> no, I didn't really do that. Like, <laughs> What kind of a terrible parent would ever do that, right? But that's the way we think God treats us. When he says, this is what's good for you and this is what's bad for you. We think he's this stingy father who says, oh, you can smell it, but you can't have any of it. No, that's not how he is at all. This is a God who makes 120, 180 gallons of wine at a wedding his goodness is overflowing. It's never, it's never going to run out. I have to admit that's, um, that's not often the way that I think about God. And uh, that's not often the way. I mean, even let's think about this as a, you know, in the context of our church. Uh, some of you know we're a young church. We're two years old. And, um, you know, there's this question of, what is it going to take to plant a new church here in Ladera Ranch that's going to not just survive, but grow and thrive and flourish? And uh, as some of you know, we, we, you know, we kind of had this financial crisis of sorts a couple months ago or a month or so ago. And, you know, it's so tempting for me to just respond with fear and think, uh, you know, this is going to be the time that the money's finally going to run out and God's not going to come through. You know, the funny thing is when I look at my past, (laughs) I think the last 10 years of my life, I can probably safely say I've been about six months away from unemployment for 10 years. And yet when I look back on that, God has always been good. He's always been faithful. And when I look to the future, I look at it like this is going to be the time that he's not going to finally come through. And that is so tragic. Um... God's goodness is never going to run out. I don't know what specifically that is going to look like. But I think in some ways I'm learning slowly but surely and finally to trust that the God who has always been faithful is going to continue to be faithful in the future. You know, one thing that we do every week when we meet is sing. And I know for some of us... um, Singing in church or singing anywhere maybe just feels weird. 
but you know the reality, why do, why do Christians sing? There aren't many places in our culture where we sing together. But for 2,000 years, when Christians have met together, they've always sung. Because we believe that we have a God who is not just good enough, but overwhelmingly, abundantly good. And so we can't just talk about him. We've got to sing in praise of him. We have a God that is worth singing about. Do you believe that? What we see in this passage is that um, Jesus' ministry starts at a party because his ultimate goal is to bring us to a party. All of human history, the Bible tells us, is moving towards a party that is about meeting Jesus. That's the ultimate destination of human beings is not that, you know, if you believe in God, you will go to heaven and be an angel and live on a cloud and play a harp. The book of Revelation says that at the end of all things, that God will come down to earth and the church, the bride, will be united to Jesus and we will feast and there will be a party and there will be a celebration that will never end. And we will know him and be known by him. Do you really believe that he is that good? Or does the idea that church is about a party, does that sound lame to you? Do you really believe that God is that good? Jesus is a humble savior, but he's a savior who throws great parties. The third thing I want you to see in this passage is this, you have to see this, the cost of the passage, and, and or, or the, sorry, the cost of the party, rather. Uh, and in order to see this, I kind of have to explain some of the weirdness of what's going on in this passage. Um, it's really beautiful. Jesus invites you to come to a party, and yet there's a great cost. It's an expensive party. You know, that 15000 some odd dollars worth of wine, it doesn't cost you anything, but it still costs something. And what happens at the wedding is they run out of wine and Mary says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus responds, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you're listening to that, it's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? My hour has not yet come. Like, what are you talking about? Why would Jesus, it's almost like, um, it's almost like Jesus is in the middle of thinking about something and Mary interrupts him by saying, they're out of wine, do something, Jesus. Now, what would Jesus be thinking about as he's sitting at this wedding? Well, what do you think about when you're at a wedding? Uh, I think most of us, when we're at a wedding, you either think about your own wedding or if you're a single person, you often sit at a wedding daydreaming about what your wedding one day will be like. And I think that that's what Jesus is doing here as he sits at this wedding, kind of daydreaming about his own wedding. And Mary says to him, there's no wine, and he says literally, do you know what this is between you and me? My hour has not yet come. Now to understand what, why he says that, you have to understand that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is um, over and over again talking about his hour. Um, in John chapter 7, he's, it says that um, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
but for this very purpose I have come to this hour. And then finally in John 17, when Jesus is going to the cross, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' hour is when he goes to the cross. So why is Jesus thinking at this wedding about his own wedding and when Mary says there's no more wine he immediately goes it's not time for me to go to the cross yet well the interesting thing in in the gospel of John there's only one other place where Mary where we see Mary and it's when Jesus is on the cross in chapter 19 and and what what it says there is this it says then Jesus said to the disciple which is John, who's the author of the book, who doesn't identify himself, but he refers to himself in the third person. So Jesus is on the cross, and it says he looks at John, and he says to John, behold your mother. It says this. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is on the cross, He's dying. He looks at John and says, the hour has come. So John, you've got to take care of my mother now. He says to Mary, this is your son now. And I think what Jesus is kind of, you know, brat, I don't know, what word do I use? Let's say grumpy, responds to Mary at the wedding when she says, we're out of wine. And Jesus responses, Mary, I'm going to do this thing with the wine here. But do you understand how this is going to fundamentally change my relationship with you? When my wedding ultimately comes, it will be because I've paid the cost of that wedding, not just with my money or with my ability to change water into wine, but with my own blood. Jesus sits at this wedding longing for his wedding day, but knowing that he will bear the cost that is necessary to get to that day. And so what we see in this is the beauty of, uh, we see the beauty of the cross in the depth of Jesus' sacrifice. I mean, every one of us knows at some level that love is always shown in self-sacrifice. Uh, Everyone who has ever loved anyone knows that the essence of love is self-sacrifice. Every parent knows that to love a child is like dying a death over and over and over again, right? A million acts of dying to yourself and your desire uh, to care for the one that you love. And in the cross, we see the price that God was willing to pay in order to bring you to that ultimate feast. Jesus sits at this wedding longing for the day that he will stand at the bottom of an aisle like a groom waiting for his bride to appear. But he knows that in order to celebrate his wedding feast, that he will have to bear that cost in his own body. And so the question I have for you is this. Do you believe that Jesus longs for you like a groom longs for his bride? You know, we talk about believing in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? And that's great. Like, yeah, you should believe in Jesus. Uh, 
But do you long for Jesus? And do you know that he longs for you? He wants you. He doesn't want to be your self-improvement plan. He wants you. Do you believe that Jesus smiles at you? That's what kind of Savior we have. A Savior who is humble, who throws great parties, and who is willing to bear the cost of that ultimate feast in his own body to show you that he loves you. So how should we respond? Well, um, there's two things that I think that we have to do to respond to Jesus. And we see him in the way that the, the groom here responds to Jesus. Uh, it's kind of funny, I think, the story um, of this wedding that's recorded for us in history, and yet so little is said at the, about the groom. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him or who he is. But what we do know is two things. We know that he's run out of wine. In order for Jesus to kind of, his character to be revealed in this miracle, the first thing that has to happen is he has to admit that he doesn't have what he needs. And so the question for us is, is that, do, have you come to the point where you have um, realized that you don't have what you need? The reason that we're doing this series on what the Bible says about food is because I think food is supposed to, is designed by God to awaken in us a kind of holy hunger. And the reality is that we are hungry people. And in our hunger, we can use food in a way that is, I guess, a selfish, self-centered. Um, we, can, we can use food in a way that is self-indulgent or self-destructive even. Or have you in your hunger um, been driven to the one who ultimately provides? This guy realizes that he's empty. He doesn't have what, he's, um, what he needs. And so he's got to ask for help. But the second thing, and I'll finish with this, the second thing he does is that he takes credit for what Jesus does. <laughs> you know, the MC comes to him and says, hey man, you saved the best wine for last. And the guy just goes, yep. <laughs> He, maybe he doesn't even know what happened, right? He runs out. He asks for help. Jesus comes to his rescue. And the groom gets the credit for what Jesus did. And friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to resolve to be a better person. It's not even to resolve to trust in Jesus. But it's to take the credit for what he has done. And to know that our hunger can only ultimately be satisfied, not by food, but by the one who provides every good thing for his people. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this beautiful story. I pray that, um, that we would find ourselves caught off guard by just... Um, the quirkiness of it, but also the beauty of what Jesus does. That he doesn't just save this um, groom from embarrassment, but he reveals his, uh, his character and who he is. God, would you help us to see you um, as you truly are because of what Jesus has done for us? Would you help us to 
acknowledge, admit to you, cry out that we don't have what we need. We are not the people that we ought to be. God, we don't live up to our own standards, much less yours. Would you help us to cry out to you? And having done that, would you help us to see Jesus, the one who supplies our every need and gives us the credit for what he has done? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.